Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He helped lead the Boston Bruins to two Stanley Cup championships and two other appearances in the finals. He was also a pioneer in the World Hockey Association, helping change the NHL forever. Lastly, he was a coach for four and a half years in the 80s and has the seventh highest win percentage of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Jerry Cheevers. Jerry, welcome to Chasing Hardware. My pleasure. Thank you. Good. Great. Well, Jerry, look forward to speaking today. Um, I wanted to start off, you're, you're from St. Catharines, Ontario. Tell me about growing up, you know, kind of in that era, how you got your start as a goalie. If, if I understood correctly, your dad was one of your youth coaches, and that played a role in it. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up and, and your early juniors years. We played in uh, CYO hockey, and, and uh, believe it or not, our church was an, ex- uh, we were an expansion team in CYO hockey. It was a new parish, and my dad was running the hockey team, and uh, like every other expansion team in any sport, we got clobbered the first game, and the goalie didn't show up for the second game, so my dad was afraid to put anyone else in goal, so he put me in goal. And uh, that's how my goaltending, uh, we could beat like 15 nothing. So it took me, uh, right now I'm still trying to get even for that game. But, <laughs> the, um, but uh, we went on to uh, Little Legion, Little NHL, which my dad and a guy named Hall Judd uh, started in Ontario, or at least in St. Catharines, which uh, translated to Ontario. And uh, then we went to uh, a city team. Our, our city team was uh, St. Catharines, Conroy, Bantams, and it was a very unique team. Uh, on that team, we won the All-Ontario twice, and which, which uh, no one but Toronto teams had won the All-Ontario. And uh, we had six players in that team that eventually played in the NHL, uh, uh, including two Hall of Famers, Stan Makita and myself. And from there, I was recruited by St. Michael's, which was a uh, a junior school, a, a, a junior hockey, a, a school in Toronto, a Catholic school, 
And my dad happened to scout for the Leafs. <laughs> and the Leafs, it was a Leafs-sponsored team, trying to make a Leafs-sponsored team. So I went to St. Michael's. I never played in St. Catharines. And uh, I played minor midget, midget, juvenile, junior B, junior A there. And we were fortunate enough to have a group of guys that stayed together for about six years, uh, including the Draper twins, Larry Keene and Narnie Brown, uh, Terry O'Malley, uh, and, and a bunch more. We stayed together for like five years. We won championships in every league we were in. And uh, so it was a good group, and it was run by basically by Father David Bauer, who's an icon in Canadian hockey, and especially uh, Canadian Olympic hockey, or national teams. And from there, I was uh, I was owned by the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, that's how I got to be a pro. I signed on with Toronto. Okay. And I, I, I in, in kind of doing some research, I came across two things that I thought were really interesting. One was the uh, St. Michael's was looking to sign, as you were like kind of going off into the pros, they were looking to sign Dave Dryden, Ken Dryden's brother. Dave Correct. also played in the NHL. They were looking to sign him for the next year, but he needed to play a certain amount of games in goal that year. Um, and typically a team only dressed one goalie. So they basically said to you, we need you to skate out for 12 games. That was a result of Father Bauer. He's very innovative. And uh, he come to me and he said that, uh, you know, uh, we don't have a goalie next year and I have a chance to get Dave Dryden, uh, who's a real good goalie. And uh, I said, yes, uh, what do you want me to do? He says, play 12 games of forward. So in my last year of junior, I did play the 12 games of forward. It was 12 worst games of my life. Every time I went in the corner, the, the whole opposition's team come in after me because I was uh, sort of an aggressive goalie and they are trying to get even. But the only thing that bothered me about the 12 games that uh, we played uh, on New Year's Eve in St. Catharines, my hometown, and I had a breakaway on a, on a great goaltender, Roger Crozier, uh, and I shot it right in his belly. I didn't make a move or anything, so that was quite disappointing. I got some bunch of assists, three or four assists, but I never got a goal uh, playing those 12 games of forward. But it it basically, uh, uh, Father Bauer's strategy, he said, the goalie isn't a player that can't skate. And I could skate good enough to, to play forward. To play forward in junior, to me, was a, was a, a I don't think it's, it's really happened before. I won the, the, uh, the goaltending trophy that year and uh, we won the Memorial Cup and I played 12 games of forward. So that was quite unique, I thought. Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing I, uh, you know, kind of picked up was that, again, teams typically only dressed one goalie. So a lot of times right. when, when your, you know, kind of crosstown rival, the Marlies, uh, Marlboro Marlies would be playing a game, you'd kind of be there as the backup goalie and the Maple Leafs would pay you $10 to kind of just be there. Well, yeah, you're 100% right. Uh, it, in the NHL, they only carried one goaltender, as you said, and the home team was responsible for another person uh, for either side. They didn't even have the Toronto Police didn't have uh, another goalie on their roster. So every game, there was either myself or a goaltender named Ken Broderick who ended up playing pro, uh, and playing for the Bruins, actually. And uh, we were getting uh, $10 a game, and we split it, whoever was available. Sometimes we had games on the same night. And for two years, I did that. And I probably did maybe 60 total games, which is a total of $600. 
And uh, when I when I got out of St. Mike's, I I applied for Denver University, and uh, I actually uh, wrote some SATs, passed it, was on my way to Denver University without even any thought of being pro. And Punch Imlock was the GM of Toronto, and he called me in, and he said, "We have these canceled checks. You you won't be able to go to college." Uh, which is quite a jolt. So I went back to Father Bauer and I said, I can't go to college. What am I going to do? So he actually went in and negotiated my first contract with the, uh, with the Maple Leafs, which was a two year deal. And it was, you know, and there was a national league clause to it, but which was irrelevant because, you know, you just, that goalie just at those days didn't go to the national league or did you, but I ended up playing with Rochester and, Sudbury and a couple of teams. Then, we, then the, I think the third year, I uh, ended up playing, uh, starting for Rochester, and we won the championship, had a good team. And, and I guess after three years, uh, the team has to either protect you or let you go. And uh, it was quite unique because uh, the Toronto Maple Police tried to protect me as a forward because they had <laughs> Bauer and Sachek, Johnny Bauer and Terry Sachek. And the league wouldn't let them do that. Thus, the the Bruins picked me up. Right, and yeah. So that, that that's the amazing thing. Like because you had played those twelve games as a forward years before, Punch Imlock was trying to make you a forward for the you know purpose of protection. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And in that, it, yeah, in sixty one sixty two, the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup. And yeah, you walk into training camp. It's Johnny. Ba- and you're, you know, whatever, right. 20, 21 years old. So, you know, the odds are against you. You do play a couple of games on a team that would go on to win the Stanley Cup. Um, what was that yeah. experience like, even though, you know, obviously it was going to be impossible for you to, you know, permanently stick with that squad. What was it like being in well, camp? That year, I believe, standing by because Johnny Bauer got hurt and Don Simmons played, who was their American League uh, goalie in Rochester, I believe. And I had to be sitting in the crowd in the playoffs when Johnny got hurt. So I was around for that. I, I'm, I'm somewhere along the line. I think I got a ring there, but I, 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 um, I don't know if I'm on the Stanley Cup, but I was the backup in that year, or at least the, the next year. And, uh, and But the, both those guys, I mean, I wasn't in a panic mood saying, oh, I'll never play here because both of them are in their 40s. Right. And, uh, you know, if I, if I could get my game together or, or do something, I might have been the next goalie. Who knows? But they couldn't protect me and uh, the Bruins picked me up. Right. And and when you were going back and forth, when you were, you know, kind of in Rochester, you know, kind of splitting time, mm-hmm. um, I, I read that your goalie coach or I'm sorry, the coach uh, would have you practice sometimes without a stick so that you'd get good at using your body. Uh, you know, first of all, is that accurate? But also, you know, what was that experience like? Well, first of all, we had a great coach there, Joe Crozier. He was very innovative, but he did a lot of crazy things to practice, uh, different things, I should say, that, that really benefited the goalie. And uh, I, I'm very thankful to him that I played for him. We had a, And we ended up having a, a powerhouse in the American League. And uh, actually, one season, with, under Joe Crozier, we played... Uh, the Leafs come down to play us, uh, and we are going to go play the Leafs home and home, but we beat them 5-1, and they canceled the, the game up in Toronto for some reason. <laughs> Funny so, that. Uh, and, and Joe Crozier was good. I remember uh, he was he come to me. I had to sign a contract with him after two years, I believe, or maybe even three. 
And uh, he said, uh, uh, I, I said, I'd like some bonuses. He says, well, I'll give you $100 every two weeks if you lead the league in goals against. Well, I, I led it for 26 weeks. So I got a $1,300 bonus, which in those days was gold. And I think I went and bought a car that summer. But uh, and that's what it was like in those days. You didn't buy Jaguars, you bought used cars. Right. Yeah, back in the day when you had to have an off-season job, right? Oh, yeah. We, as soon as we got home, took a little little rest and went, went right out to work. Yeah. So, so, then, so then you're in Boston. And, you know, interesting there, too. The 65-66 seasons, your first year, you, you come in, you play a couple of games. And the goalie's there. It's you, it's Bernie Perrant, and it's Eddie Johnston. Um, what, you know, what was it like with those three, you know, all of whom, you know, all three of you, you know, would obviously become, you know, kind of big names in the NHL, but what was it like in that, in that locker room? Well, my first roommate was Eddie Johnson and I think Bernie was uh, just turning pro then. And you got to remember that the Bruins were run by a guy named Hap Enns, uh, who came from Niagara Falls juniors, who was, uh, Bernie's mentor, a coach and, and Bernie had really, uh, you know, had starred on us too. And he was chosen, he and Eddie, I guess he, there was a two, the, they needed two goalies in those days. Um, but uh, I, I I really, you know, it, it's funny, the two goalies we've mentioned, Eddie and Bernie, I'm very close friends with both of them today. And sure. as I said, Eddie was my first roommate in Boston. Uh, then I got sent to Oklahoma City, which was a blessing in disguise. Uh, and in essence, Bernie wasn't really ready to, uh, to be in the NHL, as great as he was, he he needed a couple of years before that. So I I got called up a couple of times, and it was funny they were a last place team. And like uh, uh, one of the times I got called up, we uh, I think we won five or six straight and got into the fourth spot for the first time in in years. And they sent me down the next day. Actually, Harry Sendon was coaching, and, and uh, he couldn't believe it, and I couldn't believe it. No one could believe it. But I went down there, and and uh, I. We won our second consecutive championship in Oklahoma City, and that was when expansion happened. And uh, Bernie, Eddie, and Wood, there's a fourth goalie there too. Doug Favell was in the organization. Sure. And the established teams, uh, the six established teams, only protect one goalie. And uh, you know, we I figured it would be Bernie uh, or Eddie, and and they ends up being me. And Bernie and Dougie Favell both went to Philly in the expansion draft in 67, I believe it was. Or not 60, yeah, 67. 67, yeah. And, um, and uh, so that, that's the story of those four goalies in the Bruin organization, all who played in the NHL. But uh, I, 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 for some reason, Hap M's, and I don't play him, mean, he won the Memorial Cups with Bernie, and, and, uh, and Bernie... I'm I'm fortunate that Bernie wasn't ready right away because he he was he was he was one of the best goalies ever. Sure, yeah, goes on to his own Hall of Fame career with the Flyers, um, and and in that sixty six sixty seven year, the year before uh, uh, expansion, Bobby Orr, your last place team, um, Bobby Orr uh, makes his debut. And Harry Howell of the Rangers wins the Norris Trophy that year and says, I'm glad I won it when I did because Orr is going to win it 
every year from now on, which <laughs> you basically did <laughs> for the next decade. Well, that's that. What was great about that statement? It came from a, a real classy guy in Harry Hall, one of the one of the real greats that, that played in the NHL, and he was class incorporated. And I, I remember that statement, and he was right. And uh, I remember sitting at training camp in London saying to myself as we scrimmage and watching or control the whole scrimmage as an 18 year old, I said, I better make this team sooner or later. I said, this is going to be a good team with this guy. Yeah. And uh, then we made the infamous trade for uh, the Esposito trade. And uh, we probably should have won the cup a few more years, but winning it a couple of times was, was good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so tell me about that trade. So that, yeah. So that the first year of expansion where all of a sudden you've got teams, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Minnesota, St. Louis, et cetera. Um, As you you point out, huge trade, you guys get from Chicago, uh, Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, Fred Stanfield um, for, for Pitt Martin and and one or two other guys. Uh, When, when that trade happened, did you guys know immediately, you know, this thing we're, we're different now? I mean, we give up. Tip Martin was a decent player. Uh, Jules Marat was a strong defenseman. And I think Jack Norris, a goaltender, was the third guy in it. Yeah. And uh, no, no, no one knew, uh, you know, you know, kudos to, our, to the Bruin organization for getting three players uh, all, up in, all in the production category uh, and giving up sort of defensive things. But uh, uh, no, no one knew until we got to training camp. Then as soon as we got to training camp and we started hanging around together and figuring everyone out, each other out, and we sort of knew it was going to be a good team. It was just, and we weren't ready to win the cup that year yet, but we had to learn and and uh, uh, then we went from there. But it was a very good team, a fun team too. Yeah. And, and you know, then you, you start, you start winning almost immediately. That first year you lose in the quarters to Montreal the next year you win your first round in the playoffs, you beat Toronto, you shut them out and you lose a tight series to Montreal. And it's interesting at that point, uh, the team has no captain. You've got a bunch of guys who are alternate captains, John Busick, Esposito, Ted Green, Eddie Westfall, um, but no C. Was that, you know, what was the thinking behind that? I mean, that was pretty unique at the time. Well, it was unique, and and I can't answer what the thinking was behind it. Only management did, and uh, I think John Busick was the captain before that, and they decided with this new group that they needed three or four uh, alternates. I don't know, but I, I kind of thought Bobby Orr was one, but maybe he wasn't, and uh, maybe later on he was too. But uh, uh, no one even thought anything of it. I, I, it's funny today. I'm reading a a story, and they stripped the. The Winnipeg Jets captain, but he's still in the team and the leader. Uh, I don't understand that, and uh, and I did I really didn't think much about it in those days. We had, uh, uh, you know, they're the four experienced guys, I guess, or th- at least three of them were. And sure. I never understand that anyway. The captains and and leaders and all that stuff are are aren't designated. They're they're there. You know, they we know who everyone knows who they are. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, you just know, right? Um, yeah, that's right. And, and, and it's interesting. So, so up until that point in time, for all the years that hockey's been played, nobody's ever scored 100 points. Esposito breaks through. He doesn't just get 100 points. He gets 126 points. I mean, he blows through that number. Um, sets a, you know, obviously, sets a record for points, also assists. The line he's on with Hodge and Ron Murphy 
sets a record for total points by a line of all time. I thought Wayne Cashman was on that line, wasn't he? Or I, that was later. I think it was later. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I thought so too. And but it, it happened to be that line at least that year. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. And, and your team sets a record for most goals in history, most penalty minutes in history, and or scores the most points from a defenseman in history. I mean, it's just you know all of a sudden that team is just you know changing the way hockey's played. Um, so you might ask yourself, why didn't they win? The most goals of this and that probably was goaltending. <laughs> well, your record was pretty no, good there. We weren't. Yeah, but uh, we weren't ready to win that year. I mean, we got beat beat by, you know, I'm going to go to my grave not beating Montreal in the playoffs, but you know they had, I think nine Hall of Famers. We had four, and they were a tough team to beat. And uh, but we weren't ready, and and once we were ready, we should have won three years in a row. We screwed it up ourselves. We got a little too high in ourselves as the middle of the year there. So it's tough to win the Stanley Cup, and yeah. you got to be ready. Yeah. Um, well, and it, it's funny because so the next year you win the Stanley Cup, 1970. You you're 24, eight and eight in net. Harry Sinden's the coach. You split time with Eddie Johnston. Yeah, no, that was no problem at all. We, I mean, our our his friends and my friends made it a, a competition. You know, like oh, Eddie should play, oh, Jerry should play, and all that. But we, between Eddie and I, was never a problem. We we cheered each other and helped. Ed. And Eddie was uh, he he helped me out a lot. He used to he used to tip me off on things I really didn't know about, and uh, you know, like turning on shots and there's a bunch of things. I remember one time that. Actually, it was the playoffs, and I was playing a lot of the games, and Dennis Hall come down, and I didn't challenge him, and he shot it off my shoulder, almost broke my shoulder at the end of the second period. And I look up, and I'm dazed, and Eddie Johnson's there, and he yelled at me for not challenging me. He went back to the bench. He, he wouldn't go in because he was mad at me for not challenging Dennis Hall, which he should every time anyway. He right. was right. But we yeah. had a good rapport, and, and there was never any any jealousy or, or anything like that it was uh it was until uh, this day uh i take pride in in all the goalies i played with uh jilly gilbert bobby wood you know it's uh and not, you know it's part of you know part of being a good team you got to do it sure sure and and that year you knock off the rangers in the first round of the playoffs you're playing the blackhawks in the second round you have to go into Chicago for the first two games and, and anybody who can remember the old Chicago stadium, which I do, that was a, I mean, it was the true pit of an arena. You guys go in there and win the first two, which sets the tone for the playoff for the series. What was that like going into Chicago stadium and, and grabbing two quick ones? Well, I remember um, saying to Harry Sinden, we, we had, uh, we had one easily, I think, or, or Chicago, I think had a tough series. I didn't even know who they played, but we went and you're hundred percent right about that stadium. And it's, it's crazy. And, and believe me, what I did in that first period, um, and I talked to Harry about it, uh, it took the crowd, right. I shot the puck in the stands 15 times, stopped the play 15 times. And that's why the rule went in that you, the, you couldn't shoot in the stands. And I froze it. If you were to look at a, Stats. I think we had something like 21 face-offs on our end. I just stopped it. Uh, you know, it was sort of a plan by us, and it sort of took that crazy fan base right out of the game. 
we got <clears throat> excuse me we got lucky and, and won a couple there and going back home I, don't, I think we won four straight day I'm not sure yeah you did you swept I'm them. pretty sure yeah yeah in in but fact that was our plan going in yeah in fact in that playoffs and and then and then you sweep St Louis for nothing to win the cup and we'll yeah. talk about that in a second but in those playoffs you have ten straight wins which is a record you go twelve and one in the playoffs um, which yeah. think about that. Um, but 10 straight wins, which is a record. Well, I'm trying to think how I, how I lost that one game. How we lost that one game. That's how good we were. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I that must have been against the Rangers. It was. Yeah. You lost, you lost to them four two. I think Eddie started one game, yeah. but ended up a loss. And then, and then you started the rest of them. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you, you have a great quote and it kind of factors into this. Um, obviously that series ends uh, in a four game sweep with St. Louis the the fourth game goes to overtime and there's the iconic, you know, kind of image of or flying through the air, having scored the goal to win mm -hmm. the cup. Um, and you have a great quote that, that I've heard you say, I think I was screened on every goal I ever let in, including the two penalty shots, which is just a great quote. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, but you did admit to, you know, maybe letting in a few bad goals, but it was perfect because it sets up that iconic moment. D tell the story. Well, well, first of all, I, I uh, later on about the screenshots, I used to travel with Peter Mahovlich, uh when we were scouting and everything, and, and uh, people used to say, does he ever score on you? I said, every goal he got, I mean, I was screened, including the two penalty shots. But uh, <laughs> getting back to the St. Louis series in the fourth game, I mean, everyone in the world, you know, it was uh, knew we were going to win the series. They knew beforehand. So we get to this fourth game and the anticipation of hoisting the cup and families there and everything like that. And uh, my, after Bobby scored the goal, I, I would said that if it wasn't for me, he would never got that iconic goal because I let in two terrible goals to force in it overtime so he could get the goal. I said, we might not even have heard of the guy if I didn't <laughs> let in bad goals. But it was something like that. And, uh, and, but I remember that goal. It was very early in the overtime, probably the first minute. And uh, it, it was at our end, our usual our end. But and uh, when we when he scored, he was still in the air, and I threw my stick up in in celebration. Uh, and it went and it hovered on the glass, either coming down on our side or that side. People, the fans, were trying to get the stick, and I had to go back and get it. And I because halfway to the celebration. I said, boy, I, I, maybe I better keep this stick. So I was looking at it, what way to go? And I finally come into to the ice side and I picked it up and went down the celebration. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. And that, mm. I mean, that season, it's amazing. Or wins the Ross Trophy for most points, Conn Smythe Trophy for, for playoff MVP, the Hart Trophy for regular season MVP, and the Norris Trophy for uh, you know best defenseman, plus of course the Cup. I mean that that's you, it's mm -hmm. going to be tough to you know top that season ever, you know for anybody. Well, first of all, I don't think a defenseman is ever going to win the uh, scoring. Right. I guess it could happen, but uh, uh, and you got to win the Smythe, the Cup, the Norris, and the scoring and the heart. Very tough to do, as you said. It's uh, I don't think it'll ever be done. Yeah. And, and so, so that team, obviously you're the Stanley cup champs. Um, 
And, and you know, a lot of the talk is about or and, and of course, the scores up front. But tell me about some of the other defensemen uh, that, you know, probably don't get the credit they're due. But, you know, obviously they're, you know, the top six defensemen on a Stanley Cup team. Who are some of the other guys that, you know, stand out to you? Well, um, the two that stand out to me most, and I've had great success with them, were Ricky Smith and Dallas Smith. To me, they were the easiest defensemen. I had a rapport with them that, you know, on two and one, three and two, you know, I just knew what to do with there on the ice. And uh, they were both strong, strong in front of the net. I, I had a picnic with them. I saw everything. Uh, yeah. Donnie Ari was another guy who could skate, and you know, except Donnie, Donnie loved to block shots, and uh, which is great. I, I don't mind that at all. But once they get by him, we're sort of we're sort of no one's land, the goaltender. So uh, I, I I kept uh, talking to Donnie. If you're going to block it, block it way up there, so if it gets by, I can see it. Teddy Green was a, was a monster in front of our net, uh, and a good guy to play behind. Then we picked up Cal Vadney one year, who ends up being a close friend of mine, and and uh, the late Cal Vadney, I should say, and uh, uh, he was um, he was a pleasure to to play with. He another top defenseman. So I, I to answer your question, I think our our defense as a defensive core was underrated. I think it, it, it we we could have been known as a strong defensive team. But that's not the way we played, and that's not the what people saw. They saw an explosive team led by, led by the the greatest offensive defensive of all time, and um, uh, so. But I, I kind of think, and don't forget Bobby Orr at his at any time actually. You know, he played thirty thirty five minutes, and he had the puck for thirty five minutes. So yeah. to me, that was a great form of defense. So uh, we were never known as a defensive team, but I, I really believe that we could have uh, we we could have won two one two nothing or three two as easily as six five. Myself as a goaltender, I, I didn't mind as long as we got six goals. The chances are we we're going to win the game. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then that next year is a letdown. You, you you lose to Montreal in the quarters in a seven game series. What was that like going from the high of the Stanley Cup to, you know, to bowing out in effectively the first round? Well, it, it was awful. It was awful. And it was no one's fault but ourselves. Uh, we weren't prepared to, even though we were the better team all year, because if I remember right, the seventh game was in Boston. So we had to end up way ahead of Montreal. We had a great year, but we weren't ready. We, we didn't take that year seriously. And uh, after that, we did. And and we just galloped the next year, if I remember right. And uh, uh, it was a terrible year on our part. It was no one to blame but us. And uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, it was very disappointing. First, because we know what it's like to win a Stanley Cup, and when you throw that out, when you throw that away, and you shouldn't have, it's 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 bad. Right. That's the way we felt. Yeah. And so then, so the next year, so, and Harry Sinden's been the coach for, you know, through those years, through the cup, through that last loss. And then the next year, the 72 season where you win the cup again, Sinden's not the coach. Now it's Tom Johnson. What, what was the right. reason behind the, the switch? Was it just the fact that you came up? Well, short? no, I think the, the, the reason was no, not at all. I, I, the reason was that uh, I think Harry had a contractual problem with the, 
with the Bruins, and he decided that he had an offer in another business. And I think he that's what, it had nothing to do with the Bruins firing or anything like that. It was just, uh, it was, uh, I think Harry had something on the table in Rochester, New York, actually, a, a building, some sort of a building business uh, he was going to run. So I think it was, uh, you know, you'd have to talk to him, but I think it was his, he might have, he might have been uh, quietly at end with the Bruins, but I, I don't, I don't think so. But uh, Tommy Johns come in, and Tommy was completely opposite Harry. Harry was a regimented, uh, disciplined coach, and Tommy was, you know, do your own thing, and uh, and he let us, you know, he gave us full reign, and and it was uh, it was a good year for us. Yeah. Yeah, you you guys you 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 finish in first. Uh, both you and Eddie Johnston put up you know ridiculous numbers in net. You're both you're 27 and five. He's 27 and eight. Um, you beat Toronto four games to one. St. Louis four games nothing. You beat the Rangers four two. You're in net for the clinching game, a three nothing shutout. Uh, tell me what that experience was like. You've already won a cup. You've had the disappointment of the year before. Now you're in net in in the clinching game, and you throw a shutout. Tell me about that feeling. Well, well, first of all, that series, I, I, I forget who you said we played. We played Toronto and, and who else? St. Louis and then the Rangers in the final. Oh, we played St. Louis again in the playoffs that year? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think you beat um, them. But anyway, uh, anyway we um, – Tommy Johnson was the coach, and, and you, as you could tell by the stats, Eddie and I split every game. I mean, we alternated every game, and he went along with that in the playoffs. And uh, so we get to the finals, and we won the first game like 7-6. I wasn't very good. Uh, he played the next game. Uh, I forget what that score was. So we go to the game three that I played, and I lost. So it's and he won the next game. So it's three one for us going back to Boston. It was my turn to play, and I went to Tommy Johnson, and uh, he want, he said he was going to do. That. I said, "Listen, I haven't played well. Eddie's played terrific. If you want to change this, alternate, uh, go right ahead. I have no problem with it." And I made the dumbest statement I ever made in my life. I said, "Somehow, if we screw up, I'll win. I'll win game six for you in New York." Well, we didn't play a very good tough game and not, not because of Eddie or anything like that. Our team didn't play good. So anyway, we got beat. We're going back. Lost several men. We're going back into the sixth game in New York. Guys are got their heads down, uh, sort of, uh, defeated somewhat. And I, and I decided to go in there with a cocky attitude. And I even, I think I yelled at Bobby on the plane. He was sort of, I said, don't you get down. If you get down, we got no chance. And, Sort of made a fool of myself, but we go in and we shut them out three nothing. Bobby Orr played one of the greatest games I've ever seen anyone play that game, and uh, and and myself, I was I was very lucky that game. I'll never forget this. It's the puck must have went by me three or four times, and it never meant that New York had a two man advantage in the second period. Uh, I'll never forget Vic Hatfield dropped his glove right in the crease for some reason. A guy shot it, went by me, hit the glove and ricocheted off. A guy hit a, a, a down broken stick. I never saw the puck go by me. I never felt the puck go by me so many times and not go in. And we won 3 nothing. And, and uh, 
Uh, that was a great feeling winning in New York and winning another cup. But then, uh, as I'm sure you allude to, World Hockey came along and broke up our team somewhat. So, uh, uh, you know, but that game in New York was, was um, as I said, Bobby Orr played probably the greatest game I've ever seen a guy play. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so now you have two cups in three years and the WHA is, is just getting going. They haven't played a game yet, um, but they're looking to, to, you know, bring over some big names and you, I think I've got this right. You you made $50,000 a year and on the back of your second cup in three years, they're going to bump you up all the way from 50 to 55. And you get a Nice of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly true. I I made I only lost like four games that year or something like that. Something, and we won our second cup. And they had a lawyer. I won't, won't mention his name. He did the negotiating. He had no idea. And uh, uh, so I walk in. And he said, "Well, yeah, we're give you a five thousand dollar raise." Well, I almost cried. This was the the WHA it was an it was a reality, you know, and and. You know, geez, I must be very good. That five thousand dollar raise, and uh, I walk out of the office, went and had a few drinks, and said, "Jesus, this is discouraging." And my friend said, "You know, uh, Cleveland Crusaders? Uh, who? Cleveland Crusaders uh, just uh, got your rights from New England. New England had made a pact that they wouldn't sign a Bruin. The New England Whalers wouldn't, and I was on their list, and they they give me to Cleveland." So I said, listen, call him up. We'll take a trip. First class, we'll go talk. Well, I, we do that. Uh, Larry Garden, uh, the late Larry Garden, I did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we met a guy named Nick Maletti, who, who was an unbelievable guy. And we went yeah. we went for lunch at the Cleveland Club. And uh, he finally said, what do you need to come here? And I said, a million dollars for four years. And he said, you've got a deal. Well, I almost fell out of the chair. Larry almost fell out of the chair. I said, hold it, Nick. I don't want to come here. I want to play for the Boston Bruins. He said, well, listen, we're going to meet at dinner. I got to go back to my people. So he come back from meeting his people, uh, the investors. And he said, we, we want you for seven years. We'll give you a million seven hundred and fifty, which is two fifty a year. We'll give you two fifty up front, which we've never heard of this type of money. That's why today, as we speak, um, you know, this controversy live versus the PGA. I have no problem with the guys going to live. I mean, it's just, you got to do it. And, uh, so I go home and I give the Bruins another chance and they give me, uh, 55 for two years. That's 110. I said, listen, I want to, I want 300,000 over three years. I don't care how you give it to me because I have the WHA deal in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I said, I'm not, I'm going to give you some time if you, you know, that's what I want. So anyway, Tommy Johnson, the coach, he's sort of more than anyone knew, knew you know, that I was a, a good piece of that team. So he met me, I'll never forget, we met at Rockingham Park, the racetrack where I ran horses. And he come to me and he says, I'm here for one reason. I said, he said, to offer you what Cleveland offered you. And I said, Tommy, Cleveland offered me a million seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for seven years. And he looked at me and he said, "Do they need a coach?" <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> in other words, good luck. So I went back and we worked out the uh, <clears throat> cross the T's and dotted the I's, and I give the Bruins every chance in the world. 
And it's funny because all the goalies in that era, Dryden, Eddie Jackman, Tony, uh, Estrazil and all that, we're all making around the same. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I signed for Cleveland, they all they all went up to eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand. You know, so uh, when when uh, you, you talk about going to the WHA, it was a very important part of hockey. And and guys, and and, I, and my good friend today, Brad Park, uh, he stayed in New York because Emil Francis was smart enough to know that you know we got to pay these guys, so they all got good trunk. Him, Tachuk, Walter Tachuk. <clears throat> And I don't know if it was John Rattel or Eddie Jockman. They're all dealing with Cleveland. But Francis in New York, uh, you know, he upped them up where they couldn't leave. But right. uh, I only got, I, as far as I got, was a 10,000 over two years, which wasn't doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, like you said, I mean, that, you, they made the decision for you. You had to take that. Um, and yeah, that's a good, a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and yeah, and so the WHA, I mean, as you look back on it, not only did it create a scenario where, you know, players got compensated, you know, more for what they were worth, it also brought in, you know, up until that point, the NHL, basically, you look at any roster from, you know, from that point backwards, it was almost exclusively Canadian. Go ahead. Well, there's more spots open. That's what, that's what I took pride in most, that, that um, the WHA allowed more hockey players to play under a major league environment. And, uh, you know, guys that would never play if, if the WHA didn't happen. And yeah. like my team in Cleveland, <clears throat> I'm still close to like 10 guys that were all American leaguers and got a chance to play and a chance to fly commercial and <clears throat> make, make three, four, five times as much money as they made. I know, I, I think Bobby Wooden was making 7,000. Uh, he's the, he was the other goalie with me and he went up to 35 for a couple of years. How can he not take it? Right. And that's why I sort of sympathize with these live guys today, even though the money is a thousand times more than we're talking about. Right. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden you've, you've, you know, American guys like, you know, I don't know, you know, Paul Holmgren and Robbie Torek and uh, Rod Langway are getting their well, and you're also oh, yeah, yeah. a bunch of Europeans. Like that's you know, all of a sudden you've got Bobby Hull up in Winnipeg, and and Ulf Nilsson and Anders Hedberg come in. Well, there's, to- there's no question. You know, this, by the way, it's 50 years uh, this October uh, yeah. of the WHA. Yeah. And uh, and I think actually the Winnipeg Jets are holding a, some sort of reunion out west somewhere, and uh, uh, I, I take great pride in in going there. Of course, I wouldn't have gone if Bobby Hull didn't go. And right. maybe J.C. Trombley was, uh, was another. Uh, but, but you know, looking at the, the financial aspect of it, I mean, how could you not go? And, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, and it's and it's funny, Harry wasn't with the Bruins at the time, Harry Sinden. And by the time they ran out of money in Cleveland, he was back there and they brought me back. And uh, so it was... Uh, but the WHA was good. The WHA was good, and uh, the the end result of it was good. There was there was weak times in there, but uh, the and I give Bobby Hall all the credit in the world for for making the original move. But then again, how could he not take it? You know. Right. Yeah, I think he. I think his situation was similar to yours. That, you know, he said they said something like, "What would it take?" And he said, "A million bucks." And they're like, "Okay, you're done." He's like, 
Are you kidding me? <laughs> and 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 he was gone. He went to Winnipeg. Well, that's exactly that's exactly the 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 uh, reaction to it. Are you kidding me? I you know and I, when I said to Nick and Letty, I want a million for you. He said, "You got it." You know, I probably are you kidding me? I'm going from fifty thousand to two hundred fifty thousand a year with two hundred and fifty in escrow. I mean, how can you say no? Yeah, exactly. And and you know, and then oh by the way, by the time, you know, kind of after you've come back to Boston after, you know, four four years or so in Cleveland, after you come four back to Boston. Yeah, four and a half years. After you come back, you know, ultimately the merger takes place. And, you know, and that's where Gretzky and Messier and guys like that came in. You know, oh, certainly. Was... You know, I don't forget one of the first games back I played, excuse me for a minute, talking yeah. how important it was to the WHA. And uh, I, I was playing in Atlanta with the Bruins. And Atlanta had a big, tough team and everything like that. And a lot of things, but there was a referee, I won't mention his name. He said to me, and I yelled at him or something. He said, why don't you go back to the WHA? And this was going off the ice at the intermission, first intermission. And he must have known, he, which was the wrong thing to say, because I was about to hit him with, if it wasn't for the WHA, you wouldn't be making what you're making. None of us would be making what you're making. And I, and I was thinking of reporting him to the league. Well, I wasn't going to, but we come over the third period and, and skating around, he comes up to me and says, I apologize. I should have never said that. I, you know, he was, I had the referee in my back pocket for a couple of periods. <laughs> right. Exactly. You got a couple of calls your way. <laughs> yeah. That, that's funny. Um, yeah. And so, and you, and like one thing before, before we leave the WHA in 72 for the listener who hasn't seen it, there's a great uh, documentary uh, called the summit series. And it's about the Russians versus the NHL, which was effectively Canada. Uh, in 72 and you were originally picked for that team. I think Sindin was picking the team, but then because before the series started, you then signed, they couldn't take you because it had to be NHL players. What what was your. It's not, they couldn't take us. They wouldn't take us. Okay. And it's basically what's happened today in this golfing thing. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, I'm not a very good early season player or anything. But I was chosen to play, and Harry was my coach, knew what I could do. And he said, I said, Harry, and he said to me, I'll never forget this, you're playing the first game. This was in July. I said, Harry, I don't get ready till December. He says, I have two months to brainwash you in how good the Russians are. I'll get you to believe how good they are. So you get ready. So um, at this time, I, I, I don't think I was in negotiation with Cleveland at the time. Uh, but I, I was going to just after that without knowing it. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to play the game. So they had Tony, myself, and Dryden, and I was going to play the first game. Anyway, that's what Harry said, to get ready, because can't, he can't make anyone believe how good the Russians are. No one, you know, the Bruins, the, the Bruins, the, Bruins, the uh, uh, let me go a little bit farther. They should have been called Team NHL. If they were called Team Canada, which they were, Paul, myself, and J.C. Trombley should have been allowed to play. Right. And since we weren't, it should have been called Team NHL. And I speak to Bobby Hull about this all the time. And Bobby's, he will, that was wrong what they did. Not because of me so much, but the other, and don't forget J.C. Trombley, how good of a player he was. Sure. He would have, he controlled, he was one of the greatest quarterbacks on the blue line you ever saw. 
and uh, and naturally Bobby Hall. Uh, when we weren't allowed to play, it was a travesty. It, it should have been called to NHL. I, I, if I did something publicly, which I won't, if I ever had to do it, I would I would harp in this situation time after time because it was wrong. Hall, JC, and myself, we're Canadians. Why can't we play in Team Canada? Yeah. I don't care where we went. Even, even Harold Ballard, huh? uh, the owner of Toronto, who um, right. steadfastly against, you know, the WHA, even he said, this is crazy. These three guys should be playing. You know, he wanted to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and only Sendon and Fergie, John Ferguson, his assistant, uh, knew how good the Russians were, knew how tough a series was going to be. And, you know, kudos for them for end up winning it. That was the toughest battle you've ever seen. And uh, it was a yeah. great victory for them, but it was much tougher than they ever thought. Absolutely. And so then, yeah. so so then you 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 have your run in Cleveland. Um, you you know, in the end, you know, at the end, you, you have you know, falling out with I think the general manager Jack Vivian. Is that is that what happened? Well, it wasn't a falling out. Jack Jack was uh, sort of caught. They had no money. Okay. And uh, that, that the escrow money I had put away, they had put away from me. I had to release it just to, to make sure the players got paid. There was no money. I mean, okay. uh, they hadn't paid a hotel bill. And and, uh, and now, don't forget, Nick Maletti didn't own this now. They, he had sold it to a local businessman. And they had no money, as simple as that. And it's not that uh, Jack Vivian, the manager, tried to go me into, you know, but I got to protect my money and I probably wasn't playing very good. I mean, I know I wasn't playing good, but it was, it was a very bad situation. And I had flown down on an off day and met, uh, the Bruin, uh, Harry and Tommy Johnson. And, uh, uh, I said, I got to get out of here. They're not paying me. And I made a deal with them and come back and play for the Bruins. Yeah. Yeah. So you come back to Boston and now Don Cherry is the coach who, who a lot of listeners might right. know is the, uh, the, the announcer on um, Hockey Night in Canada um, and, you know, kind of a, a big personality. And you and Gilles Gilbert are now the goalies, the goalie tandem. Um, and in that first year, Esposito and Carol Vadnes, who you mentioned earlier, are traded to the Rangers for Jean Rattel and Brad Park. Brad Park being one of the yeah. top defensemen in the league, not named Bobby Orr. Um, and, and that year or only plays 10 games. That's when like the knee injuries are really starting to get to him. Um, but the team is good. T- well, tell me- I didn't get, I didn't get there until after the trade. Okay. After right. The, uh, yeah. After the, so I, I wasn't yeah. around with the trade happened. It was certainly a unbelievable trade. Um, and, and, you know, I think Esposito obviously still had some good years left in the tank because, you know, the, the Rangers, you know, made it to a Stanley cup final with him. Um, but obviously we're telling park, you know, great producers for the Bruins. Um, what, what was it like playing for Don Cherry and coming in and, you know, establishing a rapport, a rapport with, uh, Gilbert in net. I had played with Don in Rochester. He was on, uh, those teams we had in Rochester, those good teams. And we were pretty cool. We were very close. Uh, his, his, his wife and my wife that, you know, as, as teammates, they were, we we're, we we're very close. And, uh, uh, so I knew Don very well. I didn't know him as a coach, but I got there and, and, uh, uh, when I, uh, Gilbert was hurt when I got there because Dave Reese had played a game in Toronto and got beat pretty badly. And that's when I played the next game, but I went 
as soon as I got back, uh, I think I went 12, 11 or 12 games, uh, one 11 or 12 in a row or without losing anyway. But anyway, we, uh, you know, Don and I, we were, we knew each other. So I knew what to expect with them. And, and he was a good coach. He was a very good coach. He got the best out of his players. And, you know, we won, we went into Philly and won two double overtime games and beat Philly out in four straight that year, which to me was quite a, uh, feather in their hat because Philly was a tough team and but they weren't as tough as the Bruins uh, and uh, that was a great series for us too so I forget where we, we played oh and Montreal beat us out on the uh, too many men in the ice thing but uh, my report with Jill, Gilbert was good Jill, Gilbert was a terrific goaltender he was hurt when I got there so I did most of the playing but uh, he was as capable as anyone and uh, you know, I don't think him and Don got along. They lost the series the year before, and and, uh, and it wasn't the fact that Jilly lost the game. It was the fact that Tony Esposito won the game. Mm-hmm. It was a, a very uh, lopsided shot thing. So I don't, I, you know, it's but Jill Silver and I got along fine. He was he was a, uh, a very good goaltender. Right. And and by seventy seven seventy eight now obviously now you're in this you know buzz of of the Scotty Bowman Canadians that win four straight cups, um, you have you've got you and Gilbert you also have Ron Graham who's getting a decent number of starts in net and you're all winning you're all winning big, um, and you go into the playoffs but you lose the cup to Montreal, and the team has kind of changed a little bit now it's it's Terry O'Reilly and it's Cashman it's Middleton Peter McNabb. Um, and you have, this is just an incredible stat. You have an NHL, you set an NHL record. You have 11, 20 goal scorers. And only one of them was yeah. defense Brad Park. So that means 10 of them are forwards. So basically you get into the fourth line of forwards scoring 20 goals in a season. Uh, what was it like being, you know, kind of, you know, backstopping that squad with all that production up front? Well, well, once again, it was uh, when you have guys that can score as a goaltender, you feel a little more comfortable knowing you, you can score a little easier than if you didn't have guys to score. But I remember the last couple of games we were trying to get the, I don't know, do you have 10 guys or 12? How many guys do we have? 11. 20? 11. 11. Well, we're trying to get the 11th guy over the line and the last game was Bobby Miller. He needed a goal to become the 11th scorer. He must have had 50 chances and he finally got it. So uh, <laughs> Grapes was really proud of that. <laughs> Grapes being Don Cherry? Yeah. Um, and you guys called yourself the lunch pail AC, uh, you know, again, guys like O'Reilly, Cashman, Middleton, Milbury, uh, what was, you know, what was, you know, kind of the locker room like at that point, you know, it's obviously a different team than the early seventies teams. It it was quite the good. And, and, uh, Don grapes, you know, he made it that way. He, I mean, every day was an adventure with him coming into the locker room. I mean, for example, we were in the playoffs and Bobby Miller, uh, who lived on the Cape? He come in with a suntan, with a with a sunburn, I should say. And grapes went nuts. He says you can't have a sun a sunburn in the playhouse, and he ordered him to get rid of it. And you know, I don't know how you do that, but that's what he did. But every day it was good. It was a good locker room, no problem. Um, uh, we had a lot of fun, and and uh, it was you know, grapes ran a good show there. Yeah. And and then your last year as a player, you're still putting up big numbers. I mean, you you, you win 24 games, you lose 11 with seven ties, 2.8 goals against. 
Cherry is no longer the coach your last year. Um, Fred Creighton is brought in from the Flames. And you're in first place going into the last like two weeks of the season. There's like seven or eight games to go. And he gets let go and Sindon is brought back in. Do you remember like what, what you know, thinking was there? I have no idea to be truthful because we were in Atlanta. He actually did it in Atlanta where Freddie was from mm. uh, and who he lived in the off season. And uh, there was a press conference and Cash and I, Wayne Cash and I, he was the captain. I was, we were like the senior members. And uh, I, uh, one of our players was hanging around with Harry or something like that. I, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden they fired Freddie. And I was in as much shock as anyone, as was Cash. We had no idea what, that, what this was. I mean, first of all, we're in first place. And uh, there was, I don't know what the reasons were, but uh, no one knew. We didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, that just you know kind of stands out. It's just one of those odd decisions. And you win the first round of the playoffs, but then you lose to the Rangers in five games. So it just kind of it was just like a very odd ending for a team that was in first place with two weeks to go. Um, um, I was going to say, and the one thing you know, you you were in an interesting spot. Obviously, you had been in Cleveland for those four and a half years, but um, you you know you, you're there when Orr comes in, and you guys win and you win your cups and all that. And then you're there when Ray Bork is drafted. And he comes in immediately. He's drafted, you know, in the first round and he scores 65 points that year. So what was your thinking as you, you know, you see this guy, you're thinking to yourself, man, you know, did I get lucky? Well, these two guys well, they're thinking is I'd like, I'd like to play another five years, but I couldn't. I was 41 at the time. I, I just, I from the first shift, somewhat like Bobby Orr, the first shift, uh, you knew how good Raymond was going to be. And we had another defenseman come on at the same time as Raymond was uh, Brad McCrimmon. Mm-hmm. who was a terrific defenseman. And with those two young defensemen, it was, it was a good job by the Bruins scouting them, but the, the uh, I knew it was going to be pretty good for a while. Yeah. and But yeah. I just, my time was up. Yeah. It, I mean, and, but, you know, and you say your time was up, and obviously now you're in your 40s, but did they say that to you, or did you just feel that way? Because you're no, I made the decision. I, you, you made the decision. I walked in, I, I saw the doctor, and he said, uh, you know, we could, we can't scope your knee anymore. He said, we'd have to operate and it's going to be four or five months. And I, you know, I, I, so I walked into Harry one day and I said, Harry, I'm retiring. And without argument, he said, uh, okay, you got a week to see if you want to coach this team. I said, what? (laughs) He said, you have a week, come back to me in a week and see if you're coaching it. Well, my motto was, you know, you know, hockey was my life. If I'm going to coach, it's going to be death after life. That's the way I looked at it. Right. I, I had no no idea about coaching. I wasn't a professional. And the game was getting to the point where where you had to be professional coaches. You need assistance. You needed tapes. I didn't know any of that. You know, video was coming into, you know, my first year coach and my video coach, uh, I'll never forget this video. Joe, we called him. It was the last episode of MASH. We we're playing Vancouver, coached by by the originator of, of video, Roger Nielsen, and and I didn't know that we had a reciprocal agreement. The home team had to give the visiting team a tape of the game. I had no idea that. Meanwhile, I'm I taped the late the last episode of MASH rather than the game. And I didn't have the and Roger was asking for the tape, and I said, oh. 
I didn't have the nerve to tell him we taped MASH instead of the game. So I said, <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. But I had no idea about take video and, and, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, getting leading up to the fact that I ended up taking the job as coach. Yeah. So, so going into that meeting with Sinden, you had no plans on being a hockey coach. And now all of a sudden for the next, you know, kind of four and a half years, you're the coach of the Bruins and, and yeah, successful. And you're like almost 80 games over 500 over those, you know, kind of four plus years. Um, yeah. Did you, I'd yeah. still be coaching today if Sinden never took back what he said to me. What he said to you? He said to me when, you're fired. I'll never forget <laughs> that. That's what he said to me, and or, or also I'd still be coaching. But it, it's you know, coaching it wasn't for me. I, I, you know, I had a good team, I had a good rapport with the players. But you know what? When you think of coaching, there's only one winner every year. In other words, I don't have any teams that are now 30, 32. Yeah. There's only one winner. 31, 31 coaches have failed basically. Right. So that that wasn't for me. And I am curious in, in those couple of years, I mean, we, we uh, just, just a quick question or two, you know, two things stand out. One is it's a really tough situation. Like all of a sudden you're the coach of, you know, 15 to 20 guys you've just finished playing with. Um, so you've got to mm-hmm. you know, make lines, change lines, put people on, you know, penalty kill and power play and all that stuff. Um, yeah. And also you also have goalies playing for you now. And here you are a hall of fame goalie or well, you're about to become a hall of fame goalie and you've got goalies playing for you. It must be kind of a weird situation for them too. Tell, tell me a little bit about the personal dynamics of coaching ex teammates. Well, about- it's, it's, that's a good question. It's uh, but to answer that in, in about 99% honesty, the players I played were not a problem. The players I played with, are not a problem. They were, uh, they were all for it, you know, and the toughest problem I had is, is sitting out guys they played with. And I knew how tough they were and what they give, you know, like, like Cashman and Donnie Marcotte at, at times I had to sit them out and that, that was the toughest thing I ever had to do. Sure. And uh, as far as goaltending goes, I'm trying to think of our, well, we got, uh, we got Pete Piers we traded for, and uh, we had Rogie Bash on all good guys. I had no problem with, with goaltenders worried about playing with me. And, and all that. And uh, uh, it, it, it was the transition from players to coaching players you played with uh, wasn't very difficult. But at times when I had a bench guys and you had to do it as a coach, yeah, uh, that, that became difficult. And uh, I, I, you know, hopefully our relationships are, aren't, aren't tainted today because of that. I don't think they are, but who knows? Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, believe me, I tell you, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Pete Peters. <laughs> I, I saw at one point he was within a game or two of your franchise record for wins in a season. <laughs> and you, you, you kind of joked. Well, about it that. was, it wasn't win. It wasn't wins. It was without a loss. Oh, mine was, loss. Uh, yeah, I, I was hoping you'd ask me about that because mine was 33. I lost in the 33rd game and Tommy Johnson was the coach and he come to me, it was the last two games of the year. <clears throat> and he said, do you want to play tonight in Toronto or tomorrow at home? I said, I don't care. He said, well, you played tonight in Toronto. I said, good. And I had gone, I think 32 or 33 without losing. And I show up to the, at the game that night and I said, hold it. Where's Oren Esposito? He said, oh, I sent them home. They need a rest. 
So the game that broke my record, Oren Esposito didn't play. So, you know, <laughs> take it from there. And uh, yeah. so anyway, getting back, we played in Buffalo. And I think Pete, if we won that game, he would have tied. He would. It was like 30, 32. No, it was that many. Yeah. And we and we get we got beat like one nothing or two one. He was sensational. And uh, after the game, someone said, "Oh, he come come up one one shy of your record." And I think I said something like, "Well, yeah, tonight was my best coaching job all year." <laughs> <laughs> Which was, and we tried to win that game. On I would have loved to have, for him to have tied it. Right, right. That's funny. Um, and and I know Jim Craig was on your team uh, for for a period of yeah. time, maybe for like a year or so. Well, you know, obviously Olympic legend in the States. Uh, what was having Jim on, on the team like? Well, Jim was uh, at the time, I mean, this thing they won, the, the 80 Olympics, was about as huge as a sporting event in the history of the United States. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Sure. And, uh, and, and I, we inherited Jim and, uh, I don't think he was originally our property, but we might've traded for him and made a deal for him. I think he was with the flames at first. Yeah, I think you're right. Anyway, the, uh, Jimmy wasn't ready at that particular time for the NHL, just for, because of the, the impact of that 80s victory was incredible. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, no one knew the power of that that victory for them. And Jimmy, I don't know if he was ready for an NHL at that time. He eventually could have been, but it was a very difficult situation for him. And we won our first game, beat Montreal. I saved that. It was the third game of the year, and we won it in Boston on a Sunday night against Montreal. He couldn't ask for anything better. Jimmy was great. We won it. But, uh, you know, my, you know, he... I'm not so sure he was ready for the NHL because of the impact of the Olympics. Sure. Uh, he needed some time. Yeah. So I, I still talk to him today. He's quite an interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. Legend, legend here. That's for sure. Um, oh, yeah. And I have to ask, so I interviewed Dennis Potvin maybe a month or two ago and I, you know, obviously multiple Stanley cups and Norris trophies and all that. And I said, was there a goal as a defense, as an offensive defenseman, was there a, a goalie who just had your number for whatever reason you just couldn't beat him? And he said, yes, it was Dennis Heron, uh, who played primarily with the Penguins. Um, and he laughed about it because he, he was just thinking like, you know, yeah, you know, of all the, you know, Jerry Cheevers and Ken Dryden's and, you know, it's Dennis Heron was the guy I just could not beat. Um, w- was there a, was there a forward or maybe a couple forwards who just, you were like, Oh God, here they come again. You know, that, that type of guy. And then was there also, a guy who, you know, might've been a superstar, but for whatever reason, you just had his number and you could stuff him every time. Well, I'm not, I mean, I played at the end of my career against Bossy and Bossy could score. And, and I thought I had him a lot, but he, he was, you know, he was a premier goal scorer. Uh, I don't like to answer your question. The only, I had pretty good luck against one of the fastest guys in the NHL, Yvonne Cornway. Mm-hmm. And we used to kid about it all the time. He used to, like, he used to say, that he had the tailwind that night. and But I had good luck because I, I was a decent skater and I could move with him. On the other side of the coin, a dear friend of mine, John Ferguson, he used to bank it off my ankle or somehow he always scored on me too. So uh, that that's the only two. I, and I had a kid I grew up, a friend of mine, 
who just passed away recently, Ray Cullen, who uh, played for Minnesota North Stars in the NHL, he scored like five goals on me, and none of them hit the back of the net. <laughs> and uh, so he he drove me nuts. So there's a couple of them. A couple of them you felt very confident on them facing them, and and uh, so it's you know there's pros and cons to everything in this game. Sure, of course. Who was the what was the hardest shot you ever faced? Well, Dennis Hulls was hard because uh, he didn't know where he was going. And Mike Bobby Hulls was hard, but he usually scored, so it didn't hit me. But Dennis <laughs> could hit me, and he giggled skating by the net. But I'll tell you a guy you never heard of, to me, had the hardest shot, and he ended up being a great, uh, maybe even a tennis pro, was a guy named Doug Vollmer, a big defenseman. I think he was from Ohio, actually. Played for Detroit, maybe. he could. He, his shot ever hit you, it hurt you. Doug Vollmer, I think it was his Vollmer. name. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in the WHA, they, they, uh, the, the restriction on the stick was a, a, an inch and a half. And guys that couldn't shoot it regularly with a straight stick were shooting 100 miles an hour. But it was dropping and was like a Hoyt Wilhelm knuckleball. <laughs> and uh, they were tough to, to handle. Yeah. Um, growing up. Who who uh, who were the goalies you admired as a as a kid? You know, kind of coming up the ranks. Uh, a guy named Turk Broda. He was the Toronto Maple Leaf. Don't forget, growing up in Ontario, all we got was uh, was um, the Maple Leaf games, Toronto Maple Leaf games. And Turk Broda was when I was a young kid. But once I got older and started playing goal, I mean, I watched, believe it or not, saw Chuck Bauer and Glenn Hall were were all. I mean, I think Sajak might have been the best ever, in my opinion. He just had a great, great stance. Uh, he filled the net. He was, to me, was uh, he, to me, he was the one I tried to be like. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, and in your years in Boston, I mean, you guys are obviously winning cups. Uh, you know, the Celtics, obviously, on that legendary run through the '60s, where they're winning the NBA championship every year. The Red Sox aren't winning series at the time, but they're, you know, they're competitive. They're in the 60, I think seven series. Um, was there much overlap? Like where, you know, I knew you and your Bruins teammates were really tight, you know, did, was there any interaction with the Celtics or any of the Red Sox? You know, we um, yeah, we bumped, we bumped into each other. Uh, you know, I remember like we, we, in sports in those days, you didn't play often on Monday, Tuesdays. And uh, we used to have a, like a Monday night out. I remember, you know, being at, at, at bars with John Havlicek and and uh, a couple of the Celtics. And uh, when baseball season rolled on, we we socialized with a couple of them. But it was, you know, we were a pretty strong group in the Boston area, the Bruins were, more than the Celtics at that mm-hmm. time, even though they won 10 championships. Yeah. So, but, yeah, we did socialize with them somewhat. Okay. That's cool. Um well, I have to, I have to say, well, actually, before before we leave, I have to. I'm sure you've never done an interview where somebody doesn't ask you about the mask. So I have to ask you. Obviously, mm-hmm. your mask is is the first mask uh, that that is you know has any kind of um, decoration or insignia on it. Tell this. It's a great story, but tell the story behind it because you start off not wearing a mask. Um, you know, kind of yeah. into your professional career. Um, so tell me about, you know, kind of like what brought you to the point where you did start wearing a mask and then obviously well, the iconic stitches. Well, I knew I was having a tough time finding a mask. I knew 
if I was going to have a career in the NHL, I had to wear a mask. There's no question about it. And it took me well, one year. I couldn't get it used. Next year, finally, I I found a guy in uh, outside of, on the south side of Boston named Ernie Higgins, and uh, his son was a goalie, and he made a mask for him. So he came in and made a mask for me, and I liked it. It fitted me, and uh, uh, fit, uh, the mold was perfect. It fit me. We put sponges in there in case you get, did get hit, and uh, and. But it was white. It was just a white mask. And I kept driving into practice with two thoughts in my mind. A, how to get out of practice. And B, how do I decorate my mask? So one day, where Harrison was a coach, and the puck flipped up. And if I wasn't wearing a mask, it wouldn't have cut me. I feigned like I was uh, out like a light, went in the dressing room. He came in two minutes later and said, get out there. You're not hurt. So I was about to go back on the ice and Frost, John Forrestal, our trainer, Frosty, hold it. And he went and got a magic marker and painted a huge stitch over my right eye, uh, over my left eye and my mask. And I went out and we got some giggles and giggles. And I said, Frosty, let's keep track of this. Next game, I got a shot under the cheek. He put stitches. So that's how it all happened. A very simple thing like that. And I think it was voted the best mask of all time. But uh, it was very simple. But uh, I sell a lot of mass pictures now. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, and it obviously mm-hmm. started a trend because until then, you know, the guys who did wear masks, it was just the white mask. You know, it looked like fan under the opera. Yeah. And you changed everything. Oh, so- no, no. I, I'm a pioneer in the game because I decorated a mask. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Jerry, I have to say it's it's been great talking to you, you know, hearing about, you know, the progression of your career and obviously the Stanley Cups in in uh, in Boston and uh, the move to the WHA and what that meant for the NHL ultimately and your coaching career and, and everything else. It's it's been a real pleasure having you come on Chasing Hardware, and I, I really appreciate the time. Well, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed uh, memories are always great, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh Okay, well, take care, Jerry. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.